0: Hello everyone, my name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is a re-air of an old podcast that I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode was originally aired on May 13th, 2013, and is part one of a two-part look at the villains in the James Bond franchise, one of the most iconic franchises in film and arguably literature. That one's a bit more debatable, but in film, certainly. These two shows, the James Bond ones, were episodes numbers two and three in the entire back catalogue of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, my second and third shows ever, hosting this particular podcast. Uh, Number one will be released at some point eventually, but we are not releasing these in the order in which they were originally aired, but rather to more synergize with upcoming projects that uh, are going on here on the network. In this case, both of these two episodes, uh, part two will be released tomorrow, so that might be uh, redundant information for you, but it will be. Uh, we're releasing these in conjunction with the last of the Daniel Craig James Bond efforts, No Time to Die, which will be featured on an upcoming episode of Damn You Hollywood, if you're so inclined. So please do give that a listen. This episode features myself and my friend Pat Mullen, who is on several of my shows and still continues to be a friend and a podcasting partner. He's got his own uh, other shows that he does here on the network. If you're familiar with Pat's work, you'll know kind of what to expect here. We have a lot of fun talking about the first spate of James Bond villains. This is everything from Sean Connery up until immediately pre-Pierce Brosnan, so Dr. No through License to Kill, if you prefer to keep track that way. Uh, It's a pretty good time, actually. We've had a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun stuff and some not-so-fun stuff to talk about with the James Bond franchise, and we cover a lot of it. Uh, Before I throw it to myself, circa 2013, let's pay a couple of bills here. First up, let's talk about Amazon Music for just a second. It's a wonderful streaming platform for music, and those of you listening to this particular podcast here on the W2M network uh, can get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music. Uh, The James Bond franchise in particular, known for iconic songs uh, that uh, have gone along with them, some very, very, very good ones. So you can find those on Amazon Music, along with 70 million other songs. So you click the link in the description below, or go to getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. Fill out the little form they give you that lets them know that we're the ones that sent you over there. It helps them, it helps us, and it helps you, because you get 30 days of music for free. There is no downside. After the 30 days is done, if you enjoy the service, you're welcome to keep it. If not, eh, you lost nothing, and you gained 30 days of free... Music on a great platform. Our other sponsor for this particular episode is Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. I say this all the time. If you need a lot of help with your writing, then the beginning stuff is very useful. Punctuation, grammar, and spelling. If you're a little bit more proficient with the English language and like playing around with stuff, you can get lost in your own contextual errors. Those Those are a big thing. And who couldn't use a style improvement here or there? uh lord knows i could (laughs) my own writing is horribly uh horribly boring most of the time but grammarly is a is a good help so feel free to check out those links in the description below to help out the podcast and to benefit yourself from the fine products that are choosing to uh, support our work so thank you very much with that out of the way let's throw it back to 2013 and myself and pat mullin talking james bond villains past me take it away By name you see For my special touch To the gentleman I'm misfortune To the ladies I'm surprised But call me by any name
1: Any way it's all the same I'm the fly to me I do it
0: all because do it
1: all for free Hello, hello. You are listening to Everyone loves a villain. I am your host, the villainous one, not quite the vile one. I am Robert Winfrey. I know I had originally scheduled the second part of our Terminator discussion looking at the first terminator and arnold as the villain there for a variety of reasons that wasn't able to happen just yet i'm putting a pin in that i do want to definitely talk about that at the moment now though we are discussing iconic villains from arguably the most iconic franchise that there is as far as movies and there's a strong argument for novels as well we are going to be looking at james bond villains tonight i hope you all enjoy it and i want to thank you all for joining me whether it's live or after the fact, however that works for you. I am not quite the James Bond aficionado that I am on other subjects, other villains, other series, everything like that. So I found someone who is much more knowledgeable than I am about them. I don't think he has the junior college Ph.D. in James Bond just yet, but if you ever need something to show your in-laws that you have a degree, junior colleges, I'm sure there are some that offer degrees as far as James Bond Series deconstruction goes. He, you can listen to this man every Sunday on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. His column in the 411 Movies uh, MMA Zone, not Movie Zone, just recently reached its hiatus, and we're all anxiously awaiting its return. Please get, help me give a warm, villainous welcome to the man who used to write the blueprint, Pat Mullen. How you doing today, Pat? I'm doing great, Robert.
2: Happy tonight to be playing the role of your number two.
1: <laughs> it's funny because you can deconstruct it along with Austin Powers. So, James Bond villain. Give me a little bit of your background on with James Bond as far as that goes, where you got introduced to him, movies you saw,
2: just the basic background on how you came to enjoy the series. Well, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with my uncle as a kid, and... Uh, he was kind of like a father for me in a lot of ways that my own father wasn't, and one of his favorite 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 things to do was introduce me to two things: music and movies and his favorite 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 movie series was the james Bond series so from the time I can remember watching movies, it was constantly let's let's rent the james Bond movie and you know James Bond has a certain appeal to to every guy out there because He's kind of every good attribute you want to be. He's suave with the ladies. He can fight. He's super intelligent. He can gamble. He, he's just the epitome of, like, manliness in many ways. So it's a very easy character to get into. And as you watch the films and you kind of grow and grow, you really start to look more into them, and maybe you start reading the novels like I did to kind of play catch-up and see where the differences were. But as you get older and you really get interested you get to understand that really his bad guys are just as compelling in a lot of ways as James Bond is, and without this great rogues gallery, he really wouldn't be as interesting a character. So you start to really get into the villains, too, and how not only they bring him the challenges in the films, but character basis, you can get the very different levels of their personalities and how they're very similar but very different and how it's very easy to see the differences and similarities in them. So I, I just became a huge fan, and Still am to this day. I have, you know, every one of the films, including the non-Eon productions on DVD. And I have the majority of the novels, not all of them, but someday we'll remedy that. Oh, that's good. Yeah, James Bond, the interesting thing
1: about him is he also has such broad appeal to women as well. My mom is actually the big reason I got into James Bond, because she was a big fan of his. She's read most of the books. She's seen the movies and whatnot. Uh, so that's kind of that was kind of my introduction. And you're right about Bond. I think in terms of long running film franchises like James Bond, like if we want to go a little bit like Star Wars for example, you get these huge franchises where you get the same kind of cast of characters for more than one movie, you need a great counterpart, especially to James Bond. Because for all the talk of the different James Bond actors and that is not what we're gonna get into, but there are there have been plenty and some of them have been good, some of them have sucked horribly, let's not pull punches but when you playing you character opposite James Bond because he's just James Bond in every film now, I know we don't we don't want to go because there's so many Bond movies you know, at the non-eon production and just start we could go forever just talking movie to movie I do want to start chronologically at the beginning we have to talk about Dr. No a little bit and the good and the bad that he brought to the franchise as far as the villains go and the precedent that he set In my mind, he epitomized so much of the problem that a Bond villain can run into, in that he seems more a plot device than a full-fleshed-out character, which is an easy thing, an easy trap to fall into with Bond villains, that they're not there to be a character, to be something three-dimensional, they're there to forward the plot. And he kind of falls into that, but he established some of the great things that bond villains became known for he doesn't have a lot of screen time he's only there at the very end which is kind of the benefit in this case because again he's more a plot device than a full character to my mind at least feel free to disagree with me he that's where you get the bad guy explaining the evil plan which became a a huge deal and i know it was done in comic books before the bond movies but you have now the villain explaining his his plot to james bond after he's captured him, which, again, staple of the James Bond franchise forever and ever. So, Dr. No, the good, the bad, what he's set as far as the bar goes, weaknesses, strength as far as of him as a villain. I just want your take on the first ever as far with Dr. No. You
2: know, Do- Dr. No, it, it, you, I think you hit it the nail on the head when you said he represents a lot of the good and the bad. The good and Bond villains, and a lot of people may disagree with me with, with this, I think a great villain does have to be a little bit over the top. They do have to be a true character to really get into them. And I think with Dr. No, the the reclusive, evil genius, they kind of went in the right direction. But being that it was the first film, I think there were problems with them. And to me, the the explanation part is unfortunately something that a lot of, a, a lot of the plots that followed this film ended up following to some extent, and it kind of becomes weak after a while. And the biggest flaw, I think, they wanted to make Dr. No gimmicky to an extent. And not only pair Bond with a guy who he had to stop, but someone who in some extent could be his physical equal. Hence, and I know you're going to groan when you hear this, the metal hand.
1: (laughs) I got a kick out of those. Because for something that's supposed to be that strong, you see him in that one scene pick up the statue and just crush it. For him to then be stuck drowning because he can't get a grip on a metal, uh, to be stuck in the reactor water because he can't get a grip on the metal uh, structure that he and Bond were fighting on kind of made me chuckle a little bit, but I, I get where you're going with that. Yeah,
2: I I, mean, I, I think they, they kind of remedied that problem as they went on and kind of had to go through the growing pains of, okay, this is the first time we're going to bring this character to film. How can we do this and still provide that action beat with a physical equivalent character to Bond. And and they really didn't have a good answer because they had the, his initial assassin, you know, who was supposed to take care of him, and he didn't get the job done despite the use of a tarantula, you know, and, and th- this is R.J. Dent, the professor, and th- that's part of it, too, that No keeps coming up with these ridiculous ideas of how to assassinate Bond, the tarantula kind of being the tip of the iceberg of the whole thing. And I, I think... I think that's really where they started going a little bit too over the top with it, to where instead of feeling like you're watching an action film in the spy world, you're watching an episode of the Batman.
1: That's true. The, you do get that, and when you get into some of the other Bond entries, you get that amped up. Actually, Bond has kind of the Batman, Batman series, not just the television show, but the movies. In that, if it's good and everything's clicking, it is great, but it's a very fine line between. It's either you either get Batman Returns, which is too dark and not really a Batman movie, it just features Batman. Or you get Batman Forever or Batman and Robin where it's a bit too over the top, it's a bit too gimmicky, and I know saying Robin Batman and Robin is a bit over the top is unbelievably generous, but you kinda get the meaning there. So as far as yeah. Doctor No goes, not necessarily the greatest villain, but he does his death does spark a lot of Bond's future conflicts with Spect, which is important, and Spectre's head, number one, ha, 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 Austin Powers, the head of Spectre, one of the most iconic villainous things ever with the stroking of the cat, and you just see the lower half of him, and he's got the voice and the big high-back chair, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. You know, it's almost, it's become cliched to have the evil villain stroking the cat because of this character, wholly because of him, it was not cliched until then and Blofeld has a long history with James Bond. I want to get your thoughts on him, the various actors that have portrayed him. For those of you who don't know, he is in, I think, four or five different Bond movies, some Eon Productions, which are canon, so to speak, and some non. He's been played by a bunch of different actors. Talk to me about Blofeld. Talk to me about him as a villain, as Bond's opposite. Let's go to town on the man with the cat.
2: Every great protagonist needs that that antagonist who, no matter what, will always drive him to the action. Sherlock Holmes has Moriarty. Superman has Lex Luthor. For James Bond, Blofeld is the be-all, end-all of his problems. You know, we talked about Dr. No setting the stage, and this is another great part of the Blofeld character. He has such an ego about his organization that Bond got the one-up on Dr. No that he takes it personally that he has to eliminate this guy because he feels embarrassed by that. Right there you have one of the great attributes of you know, these villains that we're looking at. That he's he's really the the first villain in such a manner who is portrayed as this egomaniac who just can't deal with not even himself taking a direct defeat, but somebody who works for him, who is supposed to have this this reputation and represent him to an extent, that when he loses to this guy, Bond, Blofeld can't take it. He's humiliated, so he gets so amped up that his whole, you know, the whole plot of From Russia With Love is to get Bond embarrassed. That's it, to kill him and embarrass him. That's what makes a great villain, that they have this personal agenda and belief in it, that it doesn't matter if you believe or understand the rationale. You just have to believe that they believe in it, and that's what Blofeld does best when they first bring him in and continue to do so.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. Especially he's he's got it out for James Bond and that it's so much better when you have a villain, especially a recurring villain who's not kind of an incidental contact, which happens in other franchises where they happen to bump into each other. But here you're absolutely right. He wants B- to he wants Bond to pay for getting the
2: one up on one of his under Yeah, it's, a, it's ha- a personal conflict and I think that's what really can have everybody enjoy it is that you don't need some major situation to be able to make an enjoyable film and have it make money. You just need something everybody can understand. And at one time or another, everybody's had a personal conflict with somebody else. It's true. Simplicity as far
1: as motivation goes is important, especially in especially in Bond movies for my money, because some of the bad ones and there are some bad Bond, it gets too over the top. It gets too involved. The simpli—you start craving the simplicity of Blofeld, or even though he's only in there for one movie, uh, Francisco Scaramanga from *The Man with the Golden Gun*. Again, very simple motivation. The stuff around it can be a bit—you don't want to go too far over the top—but that motivation does need to be simple. Now. Blofeld, like we said, played by a lot of different actors in is it five or so different Bond. You don't see his face for the first several times that you see him. You see him first in From Russia With Love. He That's when you see him stroking the cat in the back of the high-backed chair. And you get his voice. And he's in Thunderball as well. And they did a good job of hinting at this guy, this maniacal genius, this man I really want to get even with Bond. And it leads up to... One of the better cinematic reveals in movie history, I think, when in You Only Live Twice, you see Donald Pleasance lean around the ends of the chair, and he you finally see the man behind the chair. You finally see the man holding the cat. So as far as the Donald Pleasance reveal, you know, how does that play up for you as far as a cinematic reveal of the reveal of the hidden villain goes? How does he rank there objectively? How does he rank with other Bond villains? And how do you rate Donald Pleasence and his portrayal of Blofeld? Because he's succeeded by a variety of actors, depending on the depending on which series you start going into. But how do you feel about Donald Pleasence doing it? The whole nine yards as far as that reveal goes and how he interacts with Sean Connery's James Bond.
2: I think that reveal is really such a high watermark because, you know, it's not really a twist where it's, you know, an ally of, of the main character betraying him. You find out, oh, my God, he's been playing both sides. You know that Blofeld is the bad guy. You know that this is the guy who's been manipulated. So when they turn him around in that chair and you finally see it's Donald Pleasance in his majestic evil glory, and he's not—he's not some kind of crazy monster who's hideously disfigured like Doctor Doom or wearing well, some he crazy is disfigured a little on.
1: bit. He does have that that glorious scar that adds so much character to that. It's amazing but how a little thing, even though it's a big scar, how much a little
2: thing can add menace to someone. But th- that's the thing—he's not—he's not disfigured to the point where you'd call him a monster, like a Frankenstein-looking guy or anything. He has the obvious scar that would later be parodied by. Mike Myers and Austin Powers, you know, among many other Bond traits. But it's, it's, that can happen to anybody. That's a normal human trait. So I think part of what's powerful about that is that when you see him, and he's basically a normal-looking guy who just happens to have a crazy, evil mean streak in him, it makes him seem all that much better because this isn't some pulled-out-of-science-fiction thing. They ground Blofeld as much as they can, mind you, in reality. And I think that's what makes him so powerful. And I think to really make that stand out, you need an actor who you have to be able to believe in. And I think that's why Donald Pleasance was so great at it, because Pleasance is a tremendous actor in everything he does. So to get somebody who can really hook you and make you believe as they're talking what's going on and really believe in their motivation, it's it's so important. And I think you have Pleasance really at the high mark of that, And, you know, maybe it gets ruined later on by, say, like, Telly Sodalis in his installment playing Blofeld because it it was just very apparent he didn't take the material seriously, at least to me. But Pleasance played that part straight, and he did it so well. And I think that's really the best thing that could have happened because, To have Blofeld immediately in such a prominent role, you need it to succeed, and Pleasance was the right guy, for sure. In defense of Telly
1: Savalas over Donald Pleasance uh, in the next one, which was On Her Majesty's Secret Service, they needed someone who would be a bit more physically active in that role, the way they scripted it and shot it. You had more of of the physical interaction between them, and Pleasance doesn't quite have the action background, so to speak, he's not much for that, as far as that goes. So there's, I will defend that at touch, but at the same time, you know, Taylor Savalas certainly did not measure up to Donald Pleasence. Since we're talking about the different versions, there is one I want to talk about, and again, there are many of them, but the great Max von Sydow portrayed Blofeld in one of the non-Eon productions. I want your thoughts on that, because Max von Sydow, one of the great, one of the all-time greats, as far as acting goes, villainous or otherwise, the man is, a genius. How did you like that in Never Say Never Again? How did he match up with the
2: role of Pleasance, which I agree is probably one of the high water mark as far as that character? It's not an enviable task to have to follow Donald Pleasance in that movie because he did so well with it. So I think you really need somebody who has a powerful presence and is such a talented actor to, to really kind of remind people of why Blofeld is as dangerous as he is. And why the villain of villains when it comes to James Bond. So I think Max von Siddow was really actually very good. I I I can't say enough good about him and I think he had a lot of help in that too, in that his number two of course, Largo, was played by an actor who I don't think ever gets the credit he deserves in Klaus Maria Brandier. One of my personal favorites. But not to go off on him, but there's a lot of controversy about never say never again. I actually do prefer it to Thunderball, despite them coming from bases of the same novel, and Thunderball is a great film in its own right. Never Say Never Again is one of my favorite, if not my favorite Bond movies, not featuring Timothy Dalton, because I think largely due to Max von Sydow and Brander being the great villains that Bond had really lacked for a while to that point, point. and I think maybe it's lucky in the timing and that it is very far from the time Donald Pleasence played Blofeld and Connery hadn't played Bond for some time, and the stars kind of aligned after Bond had dealt with a series of more ridiculous villains, which I'm sure we'll get into. Oh, yeah, there were some needed... doozies. There were some real yeah. doozies. They really, I think the, the goal and the one they achieved was really to remind people of where Bond had come from that drew people to him in the first place. And so maybe they didn't get Donald Pleasance back, but they got a guy who legitimately carries a lot of weight with him in people's minds as an actor and Max von Sydow. So I think immediately just from that they took this seriously again and they did a better job of putting Blofeld back into that role as the conspirator, the man manipulating everything behind the scene while he clearly maneuvers a guy who's probably capable in his own right in Largo to do things. So that makes it seem even more diabolical that this guy has to be a genius because Largo's pretty smart and he's responding to every command this guy gives him. It's true. When you see someone that that powerful, that respected,
1: like Largo was, and all of a sudden he's taking orders from somebody instant credible. now As far as non-Blofeld, who is, as you said, the villain of villains, he's the what you get so many what are now cliches that are kind of callbacks to what he did, what Blofeld was. The two other Bond villains that spring out, on the positive side to me at least, you have Orit Goldfinger and Francisco Scaramanga. And I oh, want to yeah, talk about... I want to talk about Scaramanga first because that's Christopher Lee and I'm a huge fan of Christopher Lee. So as far as the man with the golden gun, Christopher Lee with the third nip, as slightly ridiculous as that is, his portrayal was that of a a villain who didn't need a hench there's uh and there are different levels as far as Bond goes. You generally have villains who are not physically matchable with James Bond and they have the henchman who is. You have odd job, you have Jaws, you have all these other henchmen who are there to do the muscle work and then you have the brain behind all of that and when you get to the man with the golden gun, you get to Scaramanga, here's a guy who matches James Bond in Pretty much every facet possible. So, what were you, what are your thoughts, Christopher Lee's Man with the Golden Gun, the man, the assassin who wants to kill James Bond? That's his goal. How, how did that resonate with you? How do you, how did you feel about his portrayal of that villain? Let's
2: talk about Christopher Lee and how awesome. You, you you don't get more awesome than Christopher Lee. You know, I talked about my uncle getting me into the James Bond films. Well, my dad happened to get me into a series of films made by an English studio called Hammer, and they were about <laughs> Count Dracula. Played there by none other than Christopher Lee. And they were just the greatest horror movies I had ever seen, still to this day. And, and really, they hold up role, surprisingly well. And
1: Lee is a big part of that, I think.
2: You know what? In, in that role, he understood that less is more in a lot of times, because rather than be the, the kind of stereotypical, you know, Bella Lugosi, foreign accent, menacing gestures, he knew that this guy was just a menacing, evil ghoul and that he wasn't messing around and playing games. He was going to play him as a predator. And I think part of that actually translates to Scaramanga, because Scaramanga is an assassin, but he sees himself more as a hunter, too, and that comes from the origins of the story based out of the short story The Most Dangerous Game. And I think the way it translates to Bond is excellent, because Bond, we've seen him built and built and built into this seemingly impossibly good-at-things guy. He would have to be the most dangerous human to go after, and a guy like Scaramunga, who, again, we get into the ego factor, he's the world's top assassin. He gets his own private island from a black ops section of the government, uh, of, the Chinese, of the Chinese government, because he carries out assassinations for them flawlessly. But he starts to feel a little big for his britches and kind of wants to do his own thing. So he decides that the best thing he can do is go after Bond. That's the best prey he can have, and he really wants to test himself which almost makes him likable to an extent because you have to admire that, you know what, he really wants to do this. And you brought up the most important point to me about why Scaramanga appeals so much as a villain other than Christopher Lee's casting because they finally combine the physical equivalent to Bond and the overall villain as a whole to Bond. He doesn't need a henchman, really. He's able to do his own
1: The little person is his henchman. Who operates the controls for his little maze of death thing. He he has a henchman, it's just the little guy who tries to who doesn't Bond like stuff him in a closet on the boat at the
2: end of the movie? Yeah, poor poor Herve Villaché. Uh he didn't get the yell at the plane bus to plane in this one. He got stuffed into a closet. But, you know, it it's a different kind of henchman because it's not somebody who's there to protect them from Bond. Almost it, the way the way the way Bond villains would work is almost like in a professional wrestling sense where it's Bobby Heenan yelling on the outside of the ring commands to King Kong Bundy to beat up Hogan, and then finally, when Hogan gets past Bundy, he gets to put a right hand on Bobby Heenan and give him his come- up and. This is as if Bobby Heenan had his brain and the body of Bundy where you could really put them together and ultimately challenge Bond with one guy, which hadn't really been done to that point well, and I think that's ultimately the best thing that can come out of this, and that, that's really what people want to see is bond tested by. His physical equivalent And not just this secondary henchman Who you know he's going to get past To have to stop the bad guy This is everything in one And ultimately that's what people crave Is that physical conflict between good and evil and uh, I To think my that mind means...
1: that same type of relationship Is why when you talk about like Batman for example You know the Joker is his great adversary At the same time I think a lot of people Their favorite Batman villain Tends to be more like Bane Because there's a guy who will match Batman one-to-one. And yeah, you're right about it not being done very well. I don't think it was done well, again, James Bond, but really well until Skyfall, and we'll get to that in the next episode, when you had... Oh, how can I forget that guy's name? I love him to death.
2: You're not talking about the actor or the character?
1: <laughs> the actor. Why did why did my brain just go... My brain just went blank on... Javier oh, Bardem. Oh, don't do it. Okay. Javier <laughs> Bardem. When... Ha- It was not done really well until Skyfall
2: when you got Javier Bardem as the villain for them. Yeah, I I can definitely agree with that. But I think this was as close as they came, and I think it is well. And even though the conflict isn't overly physical, they're not really trading punches and kicks and everything, it is very much a hunt and it is a, a physical conflict between Bond and a first real mastermind who's not afraid to get his hands dirty with Bond and is capable of doing it and puts that fear into you with the use of the weapon, the golden gun, where just one shot and Bond's out of it, if he can get him.
1: I love that line, when they're setting up the game and Bond looks at him and goes, my six shots against year one, and without missing a beat, he just looks him dead in the eye and says, I only need one.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's that's, that's perfect for the character, because we talked about the ego factor again and how he's so sure of himself, and just when he says that, even if you, you know, because these movies are formula, you know Bond is in some way going to win in the end, but when he says that, he puts that fear into you, like, oh, wow, how how, how the hell is Bond going to get out of this? He does only need one. He means it. That's legitimate. <laughs> so the other guy we mentioned,
1: another gold, Goldfinger, oric gold. He broke one of the molds as far as Bond villains go in that before him they didn't have much screen time, the big ones. You had... You'd, you'd see Blofeld for a bit at the beginning or at, and at the end, and he'd send his underlings to do stuff. Goldfinger, you meet him very early, and he and Bond have a very interesting dynamic. They play off each other in very interesting ways. And Goldfinger is, in a lot of ways, a high watermark for Bond villains. So let's we'll talk about Orick Goldfinger, and by and what goes along with that, we have to talk a bit about Odd Job. So talk to me about Goldfinger, a little bit about Odd Job. Let's talk about what he brought to the Bond villain table that was maybe a break from Blofeld who had been all over the place prior
2: to we, we kind of compared some of the villains to the villains from the Batman TV series and that they're campy and over the top to the point where it's you're you're just laughing at it and not in a good way Goldfinger is absolutely in that same vein but he's written so well and to his credit even though he's dubbed over Gert Frobe knows how to hit the nail on the head when playing this role and, and you know he, he's his name is even Auric is a meaning of the word gold. So they went the whole mile with this, and he, I'm having a hard time because it's hard to describe him without sounding, you know, ridiculous when he has. This it's an odd thing. I
1: get with Goldfinger. I don't know if anyone else will get this reference, but with Goldfinger, I feel the same way about him that I did about Raul Julia's performance as M Bison in the Street Fighter. It is absolutely over the top in a lot of ways. It would be goofy if it wasn't, at least in the case of *Ralph* *Julie*, as far as that movie, executed so well. It fits within the world they've created. Goldfinger is supposed to be over the top, and it's—I—I I don't have the film background necessarily to give the correct terminology, but it walks that line so perfectly between, oh, I almost want to laugh at this in a bad way, and at the same time, it is just—it's perfectly executed. For the movie, for the theme, and it actually works.
2: Yeah, and I think I think the reason is because he is written a little bit more intelligently than the other masterminds with the exception of, you know, Blofeld and kind of the real cream of the crop of Bond villains where James Bond thinks he's figured him out with the melting down of the gold and putting it into the bodywork of the car and then all of a sudden Blofeld, you know, flips it on him and says, I'm not trying to steal the gold. I'm gonna put an atomic device in it and make it useless so that my gold is the only gold that matters. You know, think that about was, it. yeah,
1: That was a great moment when Bond gets in there, they pull him in for that last sequence after he had James Bond dead to rights, which doesn't happen that often as far as true villains go with James Bond. But he was ready to cut him in half with that laser, and Bond managed to talk him out of it. But he gets there and he says, you know, gold weighs X amount of pounds. You only have so much time, you can't possibly... Remove all of this gold from Fort Knox, and him to come back and say, "I have no intention of removing it. I want to make it useless. Mine becomes more valuable because there's
2: less in the world." And it just it it makes perfect sense, and no one saw it coming. Yeah, there, there was no prediction that you can make of that. It was it was a really smart, intelligent way, and it's it's a way where they kind of let him get the one up on Bond, and not not in a hole, obviously, but when any time you can have your hero get one up, and really put him at a disadvantage, that makes the villain and his plan more compelling. So right there, you know that you're dealing with somebody who's like, oh, well, this guy's for real. This is awesome. I want to see how he can get through this. When they have these compelling villains and really make you question how is this guy going to get through it, not just immediately dismissing it as, oh, you know what, he's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. There's something on his watch that'll fix it. Yeah, exactly. That He he can just gimmick his way out of it. And then to top it off, rather than just be evil and have this plan going on, he bolsters it with his personal bodyguard. Odd job.
1: Uh, odd job. That is a great... I believe he's one of the first henchmen that kind of stands on his own, as far as Bond villains go. And that's an imposing figure. Uh, the actor they got for that was absolutely... He was tall, he was broad he throws the metal hat, that, that's not someone, you look at odd job and, you know, it, he's almost kind of a Chinese stereotype in some ways, and then you see him next to Bond and all of a sudden you think, you know, this guy might be able to beat the crap out of Sean Connery.
2: And, and part of that is, is Harold Cicada, who is the actor who played Oddjob. Harold Cicada had been an Olympic level weightlifter, he was a professional wrestler, they really wanted to find somebody who could convincingly portray this this guy who could put the fear into you that you know what even if Goldfinger goes down this guy might still be able to kill James Bond. And, and
1: coming up at the end in that train car, I think it was. I haven't seen the movie in he, too long. After after Goldfinger is disposed of, Oddjob shows up and all of a sudden the tension just like snapping your fingers. There's some legitimate that, threat to James Bond again.
2: Yeah, and, and you know again this is you know hindsight being 2020 we're not in that moment but when you were in that moment, seeing the film and, you know, say you saw it when it came out in theaters, for example, if you were one of that, you know, that crowd, there's a real thought that, oh man, this could be the end. Maybe, maybe, you know, they go to another agent who has to come back and avenge Bond the way, you know, Blofeld tried to do for Dr. No. There's no way this guy can keep getting through this over and over and over again. And so when he comes down to, through that train car, you're like, oh wait, is is this it? And then, you know, of course they go through it and, but at the same time, probably the most dangerous physical equivalent in terms of hand-to-hand that Bond had seen and arguably ever does see up until Skyfall with, you know, his gimmick hat, which has become a trademark, and it, oh, it, oh, even the hat itself almost has a cult, a cult following to it, is yes, just the we got the shoe out, out, out of the hat. We did from random tasks.
1: You know that, I'm not a huge fan of Mike Myers or even the Austin Powers movies by and large, but Random task with the shoe. That was, that was I love that. That, was, that. that cracked me up. Yeah,
2: I, I, it's, it's a very nice homage to, to the stuff from these. And really, that's what Oddjob could have easily been had it not been written well and played well. And it, it's kind of scary to think about that, that he could have easily been a one-note joke and a, a B comedy as opposed to an impending, you know, doom-bringing, menacing villain. And that's what he became. And,
1: well, moving you know, from... Menacing villains, menacing henchmen. Two one-note comedy knockoffs. You go from Odd Job. The other main henchman that springs to my mind, at least as far as this series, this era of movies, you go to Jaw, oh, the man gosh. with the metal teeth. Talk to me about now. Before we get into maybe mocking this a little bit, because there is some deserved mocking going on. That's actually a clever visual. You know, teeth uh, have this really visceral connection with humanity. That's a very sensitive area. You know, there's a reason people are afraid of the dentist. So you get a guy with all metal teeth that's a stunning visual, and it is something that will elicit a gut reaction from the from people. I mean, I don't want, even want to uh, qualify that statement. People will react to that. So talk to me a bit about Jaws and how, for you, as, as a Bond henchman, even though he winds up kind of siding
2: with Bond at the end. Moonraker as a whole as a film is one of the more kind of absurdist James Bond movies. So you have to remember to look at Jaws within the context of that to see why they did him the way they did. That, that is and, true. You know,
1: that's a fair point. You so can't judge wanna... something that's meant to be a bit over the top as make, being meant to be taken seriously. That's true. Yeah,
2: I don't, I don't want to dump completely on him. Jaws is really meant, as you mentioned more than anything in the movie, for almost a visual deterrent, kind of, like, you know, the club on a steering wheel. The teeth, you know, you talked about the reaction to teeth, and that's obviously the big one that they wanted, even more so than Richard Keel being, you know, seven feet tall. Those teeth, you see them, and it takes you aback, and it makes you catch your breath for a minute, the same way, uh, you know, Christopher Lee is Dracula showing his fangs would. It's that same type of putting the fear into somebody. Unfortunately, they don't understand in that regard less is more, and if those teeth are not covered in blood or being used in a certain way, it kind of becomes ridiculous after a while, and I don't think they realize that in time and again, I feel the well, same
1: way I kind of feel the same way about his teeth in this same type of thing but different manner that I do about the vampires in thirty days of night. I don't know if anyone has seen it, I don't recommend it. There are some good moments, but on the whole, I don't recommend it a whole lot. but the vampires in that movie are always walking around with their mouths open, showing their fangs. And I got the impression, I don't know if this is true or not, that it was just like a bad prosthetics job as far as that goes. And that's kind of the feeling I get with Jaws. Although, like you said, I don't, you can't judge it too harshly because it can't be easy having, I mean, nowadays you just get a uh, modified grill. But back in the 60s or 70s, that can't have been an easy
2: thing to wear around all day. No, and, and a, lot of, a lot of what works in, in the James Bond movies is suspension of disbelief. And, you know, you allow yourself to get put into this world where, okay, this is possible, this is possible, this guy can, you know, write his name on the moon if he so desires, okay, I'm with it, I'm believing, I'm believing. But to a point, because the James Bond crowd was not usually the same crowd who uh, would be willing to just take anything and say, oh man, this is great, this is great. They did have a certain kind of standard, and I think that's why Moonraker tends to get dumped on. It's very loved by science fiction fans but amongst Bond fans who want to series... A, it's a fun science fiction movie. It's not a very good James Bond movie. That's exactly it. It's 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 a fun science fiction movie, but it doesn't work as well in the context of the James Bond, the shared universe between the films. And, and with Jaws, he, he, he's really both the negatives and the positives of the henchman in that he is that visual deterrent, but he's used to that extent too much, and that that extra feature about him, the way Aja used the hat, Jaws, Jaws, they, they become comical because they're seen too often, too much, and not being used in a terrifying manner. Well, and then, even with the metal teeth, speaking of suspension of disbelief, there's still severe
1: limitations to the human body. And I don't mean to dump on Moonraker too much or Jaws, because it's not an easy thing to do, and you know, again, as far as it being a science fiction movie, it's pretty good. But I have to request that if you haven't seen it, On one of the Mythbusters episodes, they discuss James Bond gadgets and myths and things that they do in that movie and will they work in real life. And they assign the underlings, the three amigos, the three blind mice, to work on Jaws. And some of the visuals of trying to replicate what they do in the movie with more or less a real-life facsimile provide some great, amusing visuals if you enjoy you know, kind of poking fun at things like that. And I have to applaud the Mythbusters for being able to laugh with
2: as opposed to at, which is a huge distinction when something like that comes up. The human skull and jaws have limitations that unfortunately are not able yet to handle two pairs of protruding metal steel steel jaws that are compounding with Thousands of pounds of pressure. It's true. The human jaw doesn't necessarily take the pressure the way that unfortunately. So we're gonna have to wait a little while before somebody can come up with real jaws and Richard Keogh can go to the grave a happy man knowing that it was all for not nothing. There we go. A little short on time
1: now. We've you know we talk about Moonraker not being the best James Bond movie and the villain not necessarily being the most coherent, the best loved, the best remembered. Who's your worst? There's plenty of James Bond movies. There's plenty of villains that are not good. I mean, there's no sense pulling punches. When you have that many movies, not everyone's going to be good. Who, for your money, is the worst? Who, What Bond villain comes on screen and you just
2: think, ugh? I have to say, Hugo Drax is very high on that list, but I'm going to go with Max Zorin from A View to a Kill, the last Roger Moore film, played by Christopher Walken, who I love. But when we're talking about things being absurd, I think Walken saw this as an opportunity to have fun and threw himself into completely playing this over the top and ridiculous and not really caring because at the time Walken was still getting these critically acclaimed movies left and right like the Dead Zone and he had come off an Academy Award win. So his career even then was pretty much set. But so I think he saw this as a Yeah this was just... right
1: after uh, Deer Hunter, wasn't it? it was around so that was same couple time. Years
2: after. This this I think was his first movie after Dead Zone, which again he got critical acclaim for. And a pretty he deserved good payday, every bit but, of it.
1: That's a good movie. It's a good adaptation of the Stephen King novel.
2: Yeah, one of the better ones. But at the same time, I think he saw this as, I'm going to get paid a ridiculous amount of money to play this ridiculous villain. And the plot in View to a Kill really is not strong. So I would probably go with Max Zorin as my least favorite and View to a Kill very high on my least favorite of Bond movies. Which is sad because
1: basically a, a, very, a very similar plot, you know, you know villainous plant is used by Lex Luthor in the first Superman movie and that
2: we're going to mess with California.
1: Even Goldfinger. Go
2: ahead, go ahead. Even the Goldfinger plot, and that's part of my problem with it. The Goldfinger plot is very similar where Zorn, his intention is to ruin Silicon Valley where his silicon chip business is the only one in town much the way Goldfinger wants to monopolize the gold market for 60 years. But it's played to the hilt so wrong, and that's that shows you the difference between what they can do to make someone great like Goldfinger and how easy it can go bad with a, you know, a movie like A View to a Kill. Very true. Um, I know we want
1: to talk about the next set of Bond villains differently. I do need to bring up, however, because we do see him more than once, I want to, if you could very briefly, talk about Orson Welles in the... 1967 Casino Royale, his turn as Le Chiffre, because when we do the next version, we're going to open with Mads
2: Mikkelsen's portrayal. So talk to me about Orson Welles as Le Chiffre. You know what? The original, the original version of Casino Royale was looked at not very highly once the new one came out because of how, what a good job they did with it. They're very different
1: tonally, though. I don't think you could compare them necessarily one-to-one. I don't either, and I think
2: it's a little bit unfair, to be honest. It, it, it's kind of a, a satire for the most part, really. And it, it, it's actually the only version that's really from the book that Fleming wrote. And, you know, the, the plot is very much the same. He, he has to recover the money for smirch after it's lost at the baccarat table. And he, he it, it's kind of silly in a way when he starts doing the magic tricks. And then after that, he... he he turns to kidnapping and odd torture, and it's it, it's it's very weird and kind of surrealist almost to the point where I get where they went with it, but it's not something I would classify as really essential Bond viewing or really a, a necessary part of the villain Lesher and that's it's a great portrayal or anything. Which is funny to this Orson Welles, who's you know an actor's actor
1: and portrayed villains so wonderfully throughout his career. Citizen Kane. He had some great turns as Macbeth. Odd that he would go, that it would be portrayed the way that it was as far as Casino Royale went. I don't think, okay, I think we... they
2: him as much as he could eat.
1: Yeah, but that's true. And you know, for as much as he was an actor's actor, the man would chew scenery. He was hungry. If you would let him go that. way. Alright, that is going wow, really? to wrap up part one of the Bond series. We went a little bit over time, but nothing too major. Hopefully, you all don't mind listening to the downloaded version as opposed to live. We will be back Friday, end of the week. Same time. Assuming that works for you, Pat. I didn't confirm that, but would 8 p.m. Eastern work for you? Same Pat time, same Pat channel. There we go. We will be discussing the new generation, for want of a better phrase, the villains from the Brosnan and Craig series, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's plenty of all three to go around. Uh, Pat, your column has just been discontinued. Not discontinued. You've taken a sabbatical. I do need to praise your last list, although I would have ranked Alexander Carellin much higher than you did. But I'm a sucker for the big.
2: Anything you want to plug before we go off? Uh, just keep on listening to this podcast. Everybody loves a villain. I, I happen to have enjoyed the first installment very much, even though I wasn't on it. Uh, I, I am having a blast doing this, and Robert's going to be doing stuff like this every week. And you know, there's so many great villains out there. And truth be told, we all do love a villain. They make the heroes worth watching. So without them, we really don't have much to go on. And deconstructing them is a lot of fun. And You know, you get points brought up that maybe didn't occur to you. I think this is going to be a tremendous podcast. I guarantee you I'll be listening to it every week, and I'll also be conversing with Robert every week Sundays at 9 on the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show. The great show definitely
1: needs to be checked out, should be required listening. Again, just so you don't miss it, Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, The New Wave, Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig, The Next Set of Bond Villains. Please be back for that. We might set the time for an hour on that one instead of 45 minutes like we did here, just to avoid a potential overrun. Until next Friday when I'll see you all back here. Remember, the light shines brightly because the shadows are so dark. Appreciate the villains because they make everything else sweeter in life. See you back here on Friday. Have a good night.